Paul's thinking, Angie, it's your sharing your testimony. I just place your name in Romans 9. And Paul says, you know, it does not depend on the angel who wills or the angel who runs, but on the God who has mercy. And each one of us can place our name there. No, it wasn't us. It was Jesus Christ. It was His grace and His mercy that drew us to Himself. And what a blessing it is for to have the saints come up here and just testify solemnly of the gospel, the grace of God in their lives. And it's always an encouragement. And it was an encouragement as well uh, to hear how God uses each of you in other people's lives, to hear how God used Susie in Angie's life. You know, it's been a great encouragement the last two years that Amy and I have been here just to watch the Lord use uh, many of you, all of you, in other people's lives, to see you ministering and to see you uh, glorifying God. So we're really thankful for that. It's been two years since Amy and I have been down here. And I just want to, even this morning, you know, the opportunities that I get to come up here and I just want to thank you again for the great encouragement that you've been to my heart and to my pursuit of Christ, as many of you have ministered directly to us and just encouraged us. And we're really thankful for that. And we look forward to the future. Look forward to just continually ministering with you and seeing what the Lord has planned. Well, last Friday, we had our CCF retreat last weekend. A very profitable time. I wish you all could have been there just to fellowship with us and watch people minister. We went out to the beach and uh, all the collegians were out there just engaging the lost. And it wasn't an easy task. It was a difficult time. But it was really encouraging just to see them ministering. But on our, our way down there, we were driving. We're on the 405. And we're uh, around the Fountain Valley area in the carpool lane. And I was on the phone and Amy was sitting there and you know, there's traffic slow down and motorcycles, you, you know those motorcycles, they, they're passing through, they're going alongside you and well, a little, maybe a couple minutes later, you know, traffic really slows down, the whole carpool lane comes to a stop and slowly cars are, you know, pulling into the next lane over, going around and we finally got up to this car that was stopped and we pulled into the right lane to slowly go around and in front of that car was a motorcycle that had passed by us a little bit ago. Uh, he was, I even remember what he was wearing. He was wearing his, his uh, motorcycle outfit, black leather, a little purple on the side. And he was laying down. He was on the ground. His bike was laying next to him. And I won't be real graphic, but there was a lot of blood. And he wasn't moving at all. There was, there was no twitching. He was just laying there. And, you know, even I thought we were just shocked. You know, when you see that, you just start, you're trembling. You just can't believe what you saw. We, we don't know what happened. You know, we don't know the rest of the story. But I want you to take that picture. I think it's a, a graphic picture. I want, you to, I want you to keep that in your mind for a few moments. And I want you to assume the outcome of that story with me, if you will. Assume the paramedics come and they throw their, their gear open. And the EMT, he begins to work on this man, trying to resuscitate this man. They're pounding on his chest. And they're pulling out the defibrillators, trying to, to bring this man back to life. But the reality is that despite all their labors and despite all the things they're trying to do, it's in vain. And this man, he perished and he's gone. His life is over. But I, wanna, I want you to picture even more personally. I want you to picture that you're that man. I want you to picture you were on that motorcycle and all of a sudden, you know, you, just, you hear a, a screech 
and then everything's black. There's people screaming. You know, the person that, that hits you, he's out of his car, he's frantic, he's panicking, but you don't hear anything. And then there's the sirens. There's a siren screaming, but you still don't hear anything. And there's uh, a lot of things wrong with your body, a lot of bad things, but you don't feel anything. You can't feel the pain because you're dead. Because you're dead and dead people don't feel anything. Amy's told me numerous stories about surgeries she has done while in the hospital, working on a heart, and all of a sudden this man goes into cardiac arrest and he just dies. And the doctors, to try to bring this man back to life, they start pumping him full of drugs, start injecting drugs into his vein, into his neck. And Amy's told me when she's had to go in there, this man, you know, their, their chest is open, the rib spreaders are there, and she has to grab his heart, and with her own hands, just like squeezing this man's heart, trying to pump life into him, trying to get something to bring him back to life. Well, similarly, that is what the gospel does to us. That is the power of God's word. That the, the divine surgeon has injected to us the medicine that will bring us back to life. He has injected to us His Word. And God, the Holy Spirit, he, he wraps His hands around our hearts. And He begins to pump where there's no life. He begins to pump with His hands. And He pumps the Word of God into our life, into our veins, into our hearts, into our minds. And He raises us from the dead. The Word of God raises us from the dead. And the Bible calls that resurrection. The Bible calls when a man comes to life, it calls that resurrection, being raised from the dead. And so this morning, as Mike read for us, we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. And Paul starts off in verse 1 of Colossians 3. He says, Therefore, since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And we come across this word many times in the epistles, therefore. Paul says, therefore. And that word takes us back to the first two chapters of Colossians, really. Now, Paul has explained to us the glory of Christ, the great power of Christ, and the sufficiency and the truth and the authority of Christ. And he contrasts that power and that sufficiency with the lies and the powerlessness of the false teachers. Their teaching, it's powerless, it's in vain, and it's useless. It's like an EMT pumping at a heart that's dead, and, it, and there's nothing he can do. That is the teaching of these false teachers. And Paul tells these Colossians that these false teachers are coming in, they're giving you a placebo, it will do nothing for you. It cannot help you, it cannot sanctify you, it cannot change you, it cannot save you. And so in chapter 2, verse 23, Paul says, These are matters which have to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. These things these men are teaching you, they will result in nothing. Any external modification of your flesh 
any self-willed transformation. Paul says they're, they're of no value. You can change the externals. You can change the outsides. But you cannot change the, the seed from which the evil fruit comes forth. You cannot change the heart. And so Paul says these false teachers bring to you nothing. And so in chapters 1 and 2, Paul just proclaims the glory of Christ, that He alone is sufficient, that He has raised us from the dead. And so therefore, he says, therefore, because of who Christ is, since you have been raised from the dead, since you have been raised from the dead, now I think most of your translations would say if. Alright? You can write in your Bible if you'd like, but I would encourage you to cross out if and write since. Because it's not an if. It's not maybe Jesus Christ raised Christians from the dead and even the Colossians whom Paul is writing to. It's not a perhaps, but it's, a, it's an authoritative since. Since Jesus Christ has raised you up together with Himself, it's factual, not, not probable. Notice there what Paul writes. He says, Since therefore you've been raised up with Christ. Raised up with Christ, it's, it's all one word in the Greek. That Jesus Christ has done it. It's a, it's a past event. It's a past event, meaning it's already happened, and it's passive. It means that Jesus Christ, He did it to you. It goes back to that motorcycle man laying on the ground. He can't hear. He can't respond. He can't even feel the pain because He's dead. And the Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ, He raised us from the dead. We, couldn't, we didn't know we were dead. We couldn't feel we were dead. It didn't depend upon the man who wills or upon the man who runs. But Jesus Christ, we were raised up together with Him. You can look at verse 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 13. And Paul says there, Being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. Jesus Christ, He performed spiritual CPR and He raised us to life. And so this morning... In light of our resurrection, now we've gathered here, we've worshipped Christ together, we've exalted Him, we've heard the testimony of Angie, how Jesus raised her from the dead, and so we're going to look together this morning at you know, what it means to be raised from the dead. We're going to just look at what it means to live a resurrected life, what it means to live in the power of the resurrection. And uh, these verses really reveal two things to us this morning, I think you see them already in your outline. The first thing revealed to us is the, the two precepts to the saints. We're going to look at two precepts to the saints. Paul tells resurrected saints how they're supposed to live. And then we're going to look at two promises in the Savior. Two precepts to the saints and two promises in the Savior. And so, the first two precepts to the saints, there's two of them. The first is that resurrected saints, they seek, seek the things above the things above. Since you have been raised up together with Him, since you've been given life, first you are to keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You know, that can be translated, uh, seek upwards even. Seek the things above, but to seek upwards. To go, to go up. And it speaks of really being preoccupied with heaven 
and to be preoccupied with the one who sits in the heavens. And Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is there. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the place of supreme authority next to the right hand of God. Jesus Christ, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 1 tells us as well. He sat down because He Himself fully paid for our sins. Jason talked about the sacrificial system this morning with the Levites and its institution. And man had to continuously offer, offer up those sacrifices to God. But when Jesus Christ offered Himself up, He sat down at the right hand of God. And that Jesus is whom we are to seek after. We are to pursue Him. We are to seek upwards. That His passions are to be our passions. That His thinking, His desires are to be our desires. And that His desire is not of this world, but that His desires are out of this world. Right? That's what Paul's getting at. We're to set our minds on the things above. They're out of this atmosphere, out of this sphere of influence. They're out of this world. That our thinking is not to be like the world's thinking, but our thinking is to be like God's thinking. Listen to this quote from Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson said, We sucked in sin as naturally as our mother's milk, but godliness is from above. He writes, Godliness puts a man in heaven before his time. Godliness puts a man in heaven before his time. Godliness is those God thoughts. Godliness is the mind of Christ. Colossians 2.3 1 Corinthians. Godliness is the mind of Christ. It's thinking not of this world, but it's thinking as God thinks. And so Paul says to seek after it. He says to seek for it, to pursue it. That's what the word means. It means to hunt something down and to find it and to take it captive. And Christ wants us to live life that constantly and actively and relentlessly seeks after Him. And so therefore, I come this morning again to ask you, again, are you living a godly life? Is your life consumed with the things above? Are you characterized as one who who thinks of another realm? Someone who, who thinks of another world? Someone who's consumed with the things above? You guys have heard this cheesy phrase and was said about me many times he's so heavenly minded he's no earthly good right you guys have heard that he's so heavenly minded he's no earthly good but that's not true that's not that's not true rather we should say are you so earthly minded that you are no heavenly good are you so earthly minded that you're useless for heaven you're useless for the things above You're useless for kingdom work. Are you so heavenly minded that Christ can use you for earthly good? That's the question. Our question this morning is, are our minds set on Christ? Are we fixed upon Him? And we constantly come to the Word of God which challenges us and asks us these things. Are we living or walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called? Are any of you pretending this morning... Are you pretending to live a godly life? Are you you playing it that you're godly when you're really not? I think you understand what I mean. Now certainly all of us have some struggles with sin. We're seeking to please Christ. 
But are you faking it this morning? Are you faking a godly life? Are you faking it that your life is consumed with Christ and that you're seeking after Him? That your mind is set upon Him? Watson wrote this as well. I think it's a striking statement. He wrote, What good will it do you in hell to have others think you have gone to heaven? That's a powerful statement. Because false godliness is is wanting people to think that you're living for Christ. But the end result is death. The end result is death. And it it leaves you in a state, it leaves the, the false godly man in a state where he's cast forever into the depths of hell. While the people on earth think he's in heaven. And watch this, what good is that for you? What good is that to you? When you're in the depths of hell and others think that you've really gone to heaven. But we need to, I understand, we need to move past, especially in the, the church realm, where maybe the, the major sins, the upfront sins are dealt with. We can move past the, maybe the immorality. We can move past the lying and the, the cheating. Maybe we can move past those things. But the question doesn't just lie, have we stopped those things? But the question lies is, are we seeking things above? Because if, you, if you're stopped doing those things and you've stopped the majority of those sins that seem heinous, but you're not pursuing the things above, you might as well live in those sins. If you're not seeking the things above, you might as well live fully in the things below. Brothers and sisters, this morning, as you ask yourself that question, realize that Satan would rather have you live a moral life and think that you're okay than live an immoral life, a godless life, and fall under the conviction of sin. He would rather keep you in a state of, of godless morality, of external righteousness, where you cannot fall under the convictions of God's Word. And so, Paul is exhorting us to seek the things above. Not just to live a righteous life, but to live a a life that is consumed with Christ. And I know that I'm preaching this morning. You know, I'm up here preaching. And the things that I'm exhorting you to do are the exact same things that I struggle with. You know, my own heart struggles with the exact same things. It struggles with setting my mind on the things above. I struggle with my heart being just set aflame with Christ and a longing for Him. And I recognize that each of you has the same struggle in some ways. That all of us wrestle, you know, day after day, week after week. We'll come back and we're confronted with these messages. You know, do you love Jesus like you say you do? Or do you love Christ like you should? And all of us know the answer. We're all struggling. Martin Luther had the same intense struggles. And while he was working on his translation of the New Testament, he's in a castle, you guys know the story, he's, he's kidnapped uh, by men who want to save his life ultimately, and they take him to a castle, and there they keep him there, and they free him up to this study and write. And he's there translating the, the Greek New Testament into German, and he writes to his good friend Melanchthon, and listen to what he writes. Luther says, I sit here at ease, hardened, unfeeling, praying little, grieving little for the church of God, burning rather in the fierce fires of my untamed flesh. It comes to this. 
I should be a fire in the spirit. Well, in reality, I am a fire in the flesh with lust and laziness and idleness and sleepiness. It is perhaps because you have all ceased praying for me that God has turned away from me. For the last eight days, I have written nothing, nor prayed, nor studied, partly from indulgence, partly from another vexatious handicap. I really cannot stand it any longer. Pray for me. I beg you, for in my seclusion here, I am submerged in sins. Wow. There's a man, man of God, man of passion. And here's a man who's real about his struggles. He's real about his struggles with sin. He's, he's sincere about his hardened heart towards Jesus. He's sincere about his, his own depravity. And he's crying out for prayer. And Paul cried out for the same things. But those things are they're not an excuse. They're a hindrance, but they're not an excuse. Paul's calling us this morning to set our minds on the things above. To seek first the kingdom of And so, first Paul says, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, because that's what a resurrected person do. But secondly, he says, set your minds on the things above. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Again, that word set is to characterize a Christian. It's to characterize our hearts and our minds. And we've been confronted again over and over just with our own uh, need to be in the Word of God and to memorize the Scripture, to set our minds on the things above. And Dr. Thomas uh, said recently in a class that he thinks that people are getting stupider. I don't know if that's real encouraging to you. Not to me. Okay? But he, he said, you know, people are just, they're just plain old getting dumber. They're not getting smarter. We have more technology. We have more things. And we're talking to Andy now talking about this. We have all these gadgets and gizmos and it frees us up from the hard work. Frees us up from the hard work of memorization. Frees us up from the hard work of thinking and cogitating. And so Dr. Thomas says, you know, all those things, they're short-term useful, but long-term it leaves us just numb. And it leaves our minds just in this lazy state where we don't want to think because everything's just done for us. You know, memorizing the Bible, memorizing portions of the Bible was very normative. You know, and Angie got up here and she said, you know, and when she was in school, she memorized the Bible. I wish she would have stopped there. I was like, oh, memorize the whole Bible. <laughs> I was impressed. But Psalm 130 still is, is good. Okay? That's good. But the whole Bible is really good. You know, the years before people had been memorizing the scriptures, the young, the young men, young men, young Jewish boys, you know, back in the days of Christ, it was normal for them to, to memorize the whole Torah. It was normal for them. It was, a, it was something young boys do at school. They were challenged to memorize the Word of God. And Dr. Thomas and, and many other scholars, they believe that Apostle Paul, that he had the whole New Testament memorized. I'm sorry, the whole Old Testament They believe that all that the prophets, all that the Psalms, all the Pentateuch, that he had all that memorized. That's why when we read, you know, the, when we read these letters, he just pulls out these verses from Psalms and verses that we've never even, you know, we don't even recognize seeing it before. 
And he's just pulling it out. He's writing these things down. Because the Word of God is saturating his heart. Saturating his mind. And that's the means to having a heart and mind set on the things above. You know, this morning, many of you have many things that are memorized. Many of you have all the Xbox games moved. You know the secret codes. Okay? I would imagine, you know, many of you could quote lines from movies. More lines from movies than maybe the Word of God. But that's not a resurrected mind. A resurrected mind is a mind that's set on the things above. A resurrected mind is a mind that is absolutely transformed, absolutely changed. Its thinkings and its desires and its hungers are different. Luther said of Psalm 119, In this psalm, David always said that he will speak, think, talk, hear, read, day and night, and constantly about nothing else other than God's word and commandments. That's all that this, the psalmist of Psalm 19 is consumed with, is the Word of God. Understanding the Word. Verse 19, he says, I'm a stranger on the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. Verse 35 to 37, give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. And that is the, the mind and the heart of a, a resurrected saint. It's filled with the Word of God. And again, we go back to the, the same issues. The days when we wake up or the weeks would go by without having our heart touching God's Word, without having our mind you know, set on fire. And our mind is like a, it's like a candle. It cannot, will not spontaneously burst a flame. And the Word of God is the match. And the Word of God is what we must bring the candle of our mind to, to set it aflame. You guys, if you were there at uh, Jason's graduation two weeks ago, I hope, you were, I hope you were there. If not, I encourage you to get the CD. You know, Steve Lawson was preaching. And he's preaching to all these seminarians. You know, these seminarians are sitting in the front row. And Steve Lawson is just preaching it up. And he's preaching on... Uh, Ezra 7 and Nehemiah 8. Ezra's study of the Word, and then in chapter, uh, Nehemiah 8, his presentation of the Word, his preaching the Word. And all those seminarians, you know, I was anyway, I was like, man, I wish I could preach like Steve Lawson. You know, he's just on fire, he's, he's a flame. And in one part, he was talking about uh, Israel's gathered there, just hundreds of Jews gathered there, and Ezra and the other priests are coming up the Word. And he talks about the people. And he's, he pictures them standing there, and they're just like, bring the book! Bring out God's Word! Bring the book! That's what he was saying. I was like, I want to preach like that. <laughs> you know, and that's our heart. That's what our heart should be like. Bring the book. Let's have God's Word this morning. Let's come to it. Let's open it up. Let's partake of His Word. Let's understand that when we read His, when we read His Word, He's speaking to us. The Word of God is living. It's not poetry. We cannot change it. We cannot make it anything like we want to, what we want to say because the poet's not dead. That's neo-orthodoxy. You know, like, oh, we can change the scriptures because the authors are dead. No, the author's not dead. He's alive. The Word of God is living and active. 
And when we come to it, it transforms our hearts. And it transforms our minds. Maybe we bring the book. Maybe we come to it. Look in, look in chapter 3. Colossians 3. Look at verse 16. This is a tremendous exhortation. Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, with all wisdom teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's a great, great passage. Paul says, Let the word of Christ enoiketo in you. Let the word of Christ enoiketo. Okay, that comes from the word oikos. That's a Greek word for house. Paul's saying, let the word of Christ be housed in you. You be a house, you be a building, and the inhabitants of it be the word of God. And the you there is plural. He's not just preaching to me, he's not just preaching to you. He's preaching to everyone, he's preaching to the church. Let the word of God dwell in you. And so therefore, what's the result of that? When the Word of God is within us, when it's part of our minds, which has to characterize that. It's not just talking about holding our Bibles. He's not talking about eating the pages. He's talking about the words of Scripture being in our hearts and our minds. And it's dwelling in you. And with the result that we're speaking the Bible to one another. We're speaking to one another with psalms, with hymns, with spiritual songs. That's how, that's how Christians are supposed to speak. You know, you go to China and they speak Chinese. You go to, to Britain and they speak English. You go to church and they speak the Bible. Right? You go to church and they speak a whole different language. They should be speaking the Word of God to one another. That's what I want. I want to speak the Word. I want to, I want to speak the Word more to my wife. I want to talk to her with the words of Scripture. I want to encourage her. I want to exhort her. I want her to exhort me with Scripture. That's what I want to hear from you. That's what I want to see you guys do. I want to see you speaking God's Word to one another, encouraging one another with the Word of God. That's the heart of encouragement, is speaking Scripture, speaking Psalms, speaking words of encouragement, blessing the Lord together. I want, I want you to speak in tongues of angels. Yeah, I thought this is pretty cheesy, but I thought of this this morning. I want you to speak in tongues of angels, Okay? What's the tongues of angels? The tongues of angels, Revelation 4.8. Revelation 4.8 says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The tongues of angels is the word of God. They speak the word. They preach the word. They proclaim the word. That's the tongues of angels. You want an interpreter? The Holy Spirit, He's our interpreter. He interprets the words so that we can understand it. He interprets Scripture so that when we speak to one another and encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, our hearts well up with, that's right, brother. Thank you for that word. Thank you for encouraging my heart with the power of God's word. And the only way for this to happen is for our minds to be saturated with the word of God. Is to be with the Bible to make it our best friend, to make it our companion. Maybe some of you guys can relate with this. I have this strange problem. I always have a song in my head. Always. 
Okay, right now at this time, it's, Lord, I fix my eyes on you. That's in the back of my mind. I can hear it going through, even as I'm preaching. I wake up in the morning, and there is immediately a song in my mind. I'm not kidding. Now maybe, you know, Toby's laughing because he probably has the same struggle. Okay, it's very strange. Let me see here. What was I? What song was I? I had the song here. Uh, much of you was going through my mind as I was preparing the sermon. All right? Now, by God's grace, these songs, you know, they're Christian songs. Uh, it's not always that way. You know, I'd be pretty embarrassed to tell you sometimes I wake up and, like, Luther Vandross is running through my mind. <laughs> Mariah Carey. You name it. I don't know why. That's just how it is. You know, these strange songs are in my head. But there's, you know, there's something there. I find it very interesting that I don't have to try to do it, but those songs are there. And I want my mind to be that way with the Word of God. I want to wake up and I want Scripture to be bearing upon my mind. I want psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to fill my mind, to fill my heart when I wake up. I want to get away from Luther Vandross and I want to get Psalm 119. And I want that for you guys as well. I want you to have that weird sort of problem where you just can't get the word out of your mind. Nor would you want to. But that your heart's so consumed and that you're so steep in Scripture. And you guys have heard the quote over and over. Spurgeon said, if you, if you pricked John Bunyan, he would bleed the Bible out. His blood was bibbling. I've met very few men like that. I would long to meet brothers and sisters whose minds are so set on the things above and they speak with the tongues of angels, if you will, of the Word of God. That is the mind of a resurrected brother and sister. Those are the two, the two commands. Those are the two precepts. But next to the, the doing part and all the things we have to do as Christians, there's some great promises here. There's two promises here in this passage to resurrected saints. Two promises in the Savior. Paul says in verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And so firstly here, you're hidden, you're hidden in Christ. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's interesting here that Paul tells us again we're dead. That we're dead, but we're dead to the world. We're dead to sin. But we're alive in Jesus Christ. And the word hidden means just that. It means uh, you, you can't get to it. It's hidden. You don't know where it's at. Let me explain this. Exodus 34, last chapter of Exodus. Moses, his death is written and foretold. And he dies. And Exodus 34, 6 tells us that when Moses died, God himself took the body of Moses and buried him. So God took Moses' dead body and he buried him and hid him. And the Bible says that no one knows where it's at. No one knows where God hid Moses. Even more interesting is Jude verse 9. Jude verse 9, and it tells us that Michael the archangel disputed with Satan over the body of Moses. Very strange passage. And, you know, for the most part, all we can mostly do is just kind of conjecture, you know, theorize over what it means. Well, some men think that Satan wanted, he was battling Michael the archangel to try to get Moses' body so that he could therefore 
you know, indwell Moses' body and falsely raise him from the dead, you know, demon possession, and then lead Israel astray. Well, God took Moses' body and he hid it so nobody could find it. And that is what, the, that's what God has done with our life. He has hidden our life so that no one can take it. No one can find it. It's hidden with Him. And verse 3 is pointing to our eternal security in Christ Jesus. Our eternal security in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is John 10. And I'm, I know you know it well. John 10, 27. Jesus says, My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will take them out of my hand. Because they're so tightly wrapped around His elect. They're so tightly gripped around the redeemed that nothing can pry His hand open. Because we're hidden in Christ. And it's amazing that Paul doesn't say we're waiting to be kept. We're waiting for the day when we're finally kept. But it's past tense that we are kept in Him. That this is a command, this is a a calling for us to establish our faith in God's Word that we are kept. Faith in the absolute trustworthiness of God's Word. That we're not trusting in our own deeds. If we were, we would fall away. If we were trusting in our own righteousness, we would fail. But that we're trusting in, in God and His perfect provisions and His perfect faithfulness. That He has hidden us and that nothing, nothing can take us away from Him. And the whole point of that is because we're hidden, we're hidden with Him. Where is He? He's in the heavens. We're already there with Him. Now, I don't pretend to understand, I fully understand this passage. Because somehow, God's Word teaches us that we're already with Him, even though we're still on earth. That we have died, and our life is hidden with Christ. Where is Christ? Christ is at the right hand of the Father. We're with Him. We're hidden. We're already there. The point is that we're supposed to live like we're already in heaven. Going back to godliness. We're supposed to live like we're already in heaven. We're supposed to think like we're already in heaven. You guys think back to, you know, grade school, maybe high school, you know, maybe still in college. Think about that, that week before spring bake. And for me, you know, my third grade teacher, he would, he would walk by and I was so out to lunch, he would whack me on the head with a pencil. I, I just wasn't paying attention. You know, I'm certain, you know, they would have, they would have said, you have ADD. Okay? I don't buy that, but they would have, you know, they would have classified me as that. My teacher come around, because I'm always just out to lunch. I'm, I'm thinking about something else. I got Luther Vandross going through my mind. <laughs> you know, he's like, come on, Marcus, wake up. You know, I was already gone. I was already on spring break. You guys remember that? And you're looking at the last few, it's Friday, you know, it's like 1 o'clock, you've got another hour. You know, Mr. Jones is up there talking about something and you're like, man, I'm out of here, I'm gone. You know, everyone's just got this, they're not even, because their mind is somewhere else. And that's, that's what Paul's getting at. Your mind is somewhere else. 
Your life is somewhere else. Your life is hidden with Christ. You don't live like you're still in class. You're on spring break. You're freed. You live a godly life. You live like you're already in heaven. You're already walking the streets of gold. You're sanctified. You're holy. You don't have to sin because sin is not your master. You don't, you don't have to fail. You don't have to, you don't have to fall away because you are hidden in Christ. And not only are we hidden in Christ, but when He returns, we will be revealed with Him. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. I just call this the the when and then verse. The when and then verse. When Christ, then us. When Christ is revealed, then we will be revealed. Again, the verb's passive. We're hidden passively. God hid us. We're revealed passively. God is the one who reveals us. Brothers and sisters, this is a... For me, this has been a tremendous text. And even this verse. This verse really is the pinnacle of our salvation. This is the... uh, Let me rephrase that. This is the pinnacle of our sanctification. This is the highest point of sanctification. 1 John 3, 2-3 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. John says, when He appears, we will then be like Him. That we will then be revealed as how we are. This is the pinnacle of our sanctification. Because what's going to happen is, Jesus Christ, He's going to descend. He's going to appear. Or we're going to die first, so we're going to go be with Him. And we're going to stand before Him in His glory. And His holiness is going to consume us. And it's going to purge us. It's going to burn up all of the sin, all of the dross, all of our leftover depravity. It's going to utterly destroy it and wipe it away. It's going to wipe it out. And Jesus Christ, He's going to be, He is the bright morning star. He is the bright morning star, the Bible says. I was looking at some facts. The surface of the sun it's 10,000 degrees. Okay, it's 10,000 degrees. I was a little disappointed in that. I thought it was hotter. But it is. Okay, that's the surface. The center of the sun is 27 million degrees. That's unbelievable. All right? But listen to this. Second Peter 3.10 says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. You know what I think? I think that He is going to return and that His glory is what's going to burn everything up. He's going to be so fierce in glory, so pure in holiness, that His glory coming in contact with the depraved world, it's going to utterly destroy everything. 
It's going to burn it up. So the sun, that's 27 million degrees, it's going to be like an ice cube. It's going to melt it. It's going to destroy it. It's going to obliterate it. And then we, we're going to stand before that glory and it's going to purge us of everything that's sinful and wicked in us. And we speak of being purged of dross, the refiner's fire. Refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. That refiner's fire, we understand, he was the, the smelter, the man who works with the metals, and they would melt that metal, whatever it was. It would become so hot that all of the liquid and all of the, the richness it would stay at the bottom and all the dross would come to the top. And then the, the metal worker, he would skim off the dross. He would take off the corruption and throw it out. Listen to Zechariah 13.9. I'm sorry. Zechariah 13.9. God says, And I will bring the third part of Israel through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. He's going to purge. We're going to stand before His glory that's so bright, that's so pure, so radiant, and it's just going to purge us. It's the pinnacle of our sanctification. Because after that, after, after that, there's no more sanctification. It's called glorification. We're glorified. We're absolutely holy forever. Our minds will be absolutely longing and hungering and worshiping God. There'll be no more struggling. No more sin. So I ask you this morning, if His return, or if we should go to Him, is the pinnacle of our sanctification and our glorification, do you long for His return? Do you long for His return? Because if you do not long for His return, then you do not long for sanctification. If you don't long for Jesus Christ to return in His glory and and to purge us, if you don't long for the greatest means of sanctification, and if you do not long for Him, then you do not. Long for that sanctification. Why well, is ask yourself right now at this moment? Do you long for his return? And not only do you long for it, that's a you know, we've we've moved way ahead. Do you think about it? Is that something that you desire? Is that something that you want? Do you long for him to to return and to cease all the plans that you have, to cease all of your hopes and dreams? Because your greatest hope is for him to return. Your greatest desire is for Him to return and to reveal you as you are. That's a tremendous text for my heart. I pray this for your heart as well. You know, I've this morning preached maybe an active message, for, especially with the first point. And there can be that response. There's, there's so much to do here. You know, there's, there's always so much to do. There's always so many things to be done. We must always hear these messages. But I want to encourage you this morning as you evaluate your life with the Word of God. And, you know, as, as again, there is that active, engaging part. I would encourage you to, to really rest and trust in God. Trust that you have been hidden with Him. That He is in His faithfulness sanctifying you that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it.
this this morning, brothers and sisters, encourage you, don't, don't labor in the flesh. Don't try to sanctify yourselves in your own flesh, in your own strength. But trust in the sufficiency of Christ. Trust in His Word and trust in His faithfulness that when He appears, you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your, your great truths. Your word is, it is a balm to our soul. It is a great encouragement, Lord, to help us to think about these things, to help us to be thrilled at your return. Lord, that your 90 trillion degree glory is just going to consume everything. Lord, the wicked will be burned up like dross because that's all they're made out of. But Lord, your saints, whom indwells the precious Holy Spirit, will preserve us. Lord, that... All that is this mortal life, it will go, and, and the sinfulness of this flesh, it will be, it will be consumed. But Lord, we will be standing before you in perfection and holiness forever. God, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you that they are inspired by you. They are breathed by you. Lord, there is much profitability for the saints when they are, when they are unfolded. Lord, may you. Help Cornerstone Bible Church to be a church that speaks to one another with the tongues of Scripture, whose language is the Word of God, Lord, whose mind is set on the things above, and who eagerly await for your return, for your glory to be revealed to all men. We pray these things in your name. Amen.